Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we continue our series in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is Matthew uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7. We'll be looking at Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48 today, and we continue to see how uh, really the Sermon uh, on the Mount, and particularly the section we've been looking at for the last uh, four or five weeks, is really all about love. It's really centered on the idea of love. We're going to see that a little bit more clearly today. But when you think about it, of course, unjustified anger that we looked at several weeks ago is working against love. And then and then and then reconciliation uh, as soon as possible is an act of of love. If we can come together and resolve our differences, as we saw earlier in Matthew five, looking outside the marriage relationship through lust or pursuing a relationship outside uh, marriage uh, through divorce. Uh, Those things are working, uh, obviously, against the love relationship if there's not a cause or a reason for those things. And then we saw last week as we looked at the idea of uh, speaking truth that that the uh, people were making oaths they didn't really plan to commit. They were sort of shrouding their falsehood in an appearance of truth. Uh, We said really to speak lovingly is to speak truthfully. Speak honestly to know that we can be people of integrity. That's part of love. And then, of course, this week we see it and the idea of loving our enemies and uh, not resisting even those who are evil. So I invite you to stand with me as we uh, read God's word together. I'll read it aloud as you read along silently. And I'll start in verse 38 of Matthew chapter 5. It says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you to take your tunic, give him your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You may be seated and let's pray again. Father, help us in our time uh, absorbing your word and applying it and receiving it and drawing close to you through it. Uh, We really need that every week. We especially need it this week. These are challenging verses for us to apply. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2005, you may recall news somewhat similar to some of the sad incidents I just prayed about in our own city. In 2005, came out of the city of Atlanta. Uh, A man named Brian Nichols was at a sentencing hearing at the Atlanta courthouse, and you recall he escaped, grabbed a weapon, and killed, I believe, four officers on his way out. The manhunt, of course, ensued. 
But Nichols had found a place to hole up. He had captured a woman named Ashley Smith, forced her, this single mom, into her apartment. She was dealing, as she later explained, with her, her own troubles in life, some substance addiction issues, and she was just beginning to kind of reconnect in her relationship with the Lord. Now, no one would have uh, faulted. Uh, I don't think probably any of us would, would have faulted Ashley for uh, doing whatever she could have done to uh, defend herself, but she was really in a helpless situation. No one would have faulted her for trying to escape or even have simply her simply enduring silently her captivity instead and you probably remember the story because it made national news she chose to reach out to Nichols the man who was holding her captive against her will by reading to him from a popular Christian book at the time called the purpose-driven life that certainly conveyed the message of the gospel And as she showed love to her persecutor, her enemy, her oppressor, his violent demeanor began to melt. Now, it's interesting. I watched this week because I, you know, I didn't remember all the details of the story, but I watched a YouTube video and they asked her specifically, imagine how bold she was to do this. They asked her specifically, what did you say to him? What was the conversation like? And she said at one point he asked her what she thought his purpose was, because this is this purpose driven life. And she truthfully answered him. She said, I think your purpose right now is to turn yourself into the police, to be charged for your crimes, serve time in jail, and maybe you'll be able to share Christ with people there, and maybe one day you'll get out free. It's a bold thing to say, bold things to do for a woman who's being held captive. Of course, if you remember the story, he chose to do exactly that. And the whole situation, which could have gotten much more violent and much worse, was diffused By love, by love for enemies. Now, when we think about the verses that we read today, our minds probably immediately go to certainly big picture things like what's the role of our country and its military and the power we have in the world with things like ISIS in the news. Uh, It goes to the immediate front for many of us with people that we're facing that we might consider to be enemies or at least those that give us a hard time in our workplace or in our family environment. People that we're against at some level and how to actually begin to try to live out these challenging words that Jesus gives to us. The first thing we need to see before we go anywhere with these good words from Jesus is to kind of leapfrog from here. To the end of Matthew and the the same account really at the end of every one of the Gospels. They're unique pieces of literature, the Gospels, because about a third of the space in each of them is not taken up with some general history about the person of Jesus, but specific history about one act that he performed, about his going to the cross and his dying for us and his being raised again. And so when we think about loving our enemies and we hear Jesus's words, we're hearing them from somebody who did it, who did it to the fullest degree. And so he doesn't speak from, you know, his lofty place of speaking is not some ivory tower where he throws out ideas for other people to follow. His lofty place of speaking to us, if you will, is from the cross. And he even went so far, didn't he? As to say to those who were nailing his arms and legs to that piece of wood that would bring about his death, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
So Jesus isn't asking us to go someplace that he hasn't gone. He isn't just telling us to do things that are pie in the sky. He's inviting us to follow him as his followers. So if you want to follow along, and, and you may even if you're not a normal follower along or in the back of the worship guide kind of person, you might want to turn back there today because I, I, there's a lot in here and there's some things that maybe you can take with and ponder on your, on your own. Uh, but I put a number of quotes, probably more than I do on a normal week. At the very least, we want to meditate on this idea that because Jesus loved his enemies, we should love our enemies as well. Now, you recall, we need to set it up a little bit again. You recall, we've seen a pattern each week. And the pattern, especially in the last couple of weeks, is Jesus is giving an authentic, true interpretation of words from the Old Testament that the people in his day were confusing and muddling and bringing down to their level to make them more obeyable or lifting themselves up to make them feel like they were better and more moral people. Jesus is concerned about that watering down of God's word and God's commands. And he's concerned about it, of course, because it's God's word and it shouldn't be messed with or misinterpreted. It ought to be taken the way it's supposed to. He's concerned with it because in so doing that, that mirror that we've talked about is being removed, right? That, that allows you to see the blemishes and see the need to get some help for that. That commandment, those laws of God are being removed. And, of course, it is leaving his people with nothing really to aim at, as he says in these verses. Everybody loves their friends, loves those who do good things for them. What's distinctively a Christian about that? What's distinctively godly about that? Nothing, really. You've watered it down. You've made it obeyable. And, and really, we can think of three different mindsets. Again, as we look at this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount and kind of wrap up this part today as we move into chapter 6, there's three different mindsets that are going on. One is, hey, this is true. This is authentic word from, from God for us to receive. But it's impossible. It's, it's pie in the sky. It can't be done and kind of ignores the, the power of Christ to work in our lives. Uh, a second mindset, mindset B, would be, uh, yeah, it's true. I hear what Jesus is saying. But, but the relationship with God is really about grace and about his mercy. And, and this stuff gets into some real specific things like serving other people and doing what other people say for you to do when you don't want to do it. And it, it just feels kind of legalistic. Like, I've got to actually do this thing and obey it. And I don't think that was kind of Jesus's program. So that's, you know, mindset two might take us down that way, route. Mindset three might be, you know, I'm not even sure I buy this book is really true. But boy, I have this fascinating uh, layout for society that Jesus has given, kind of a remarkable layout for it. But, uh, but I don't really know if I buy this stuff about personally needing to recognize my sin, personally needing to receive what Jesus has done for me. So there's, there's at least three different routes we can go that take us off track with this whole section on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus brings us back and says, yeah, guess what? This is totally impossible in and of yourself. Not going to be able to love enemies like this. Not going to be able to, to withhold fire, returning fire from those who uh, persecute you or give difficulty. You're not going to be able to do that. Uh, yes, indeed, uh, the scriptures are a message of grace, but guess what? I, I, I'm calling you to be a transformed witness of a different kingdom in the world. And so that's going to mean some behavior changes, too. It's not just uh, receiving what God's done. It's actually responding to it as well. And, and yes, Jesus is going to give some directives for us to live by. So with that set up, let's take a look at 
what these verses say to us. First, we see that we should show a non-resistant love. Look with me at verse 38 here. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. He says, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, when we hear that, what do we hear? Sounds harsh, right? Sounds pretty violent. Well, Jesus is trying to show his disciples a, a couple of things. One is, if you look back at the Old Testament and see where this commandment appears, which is pretty important. It's not in Exodus 20 where the general list of the Ten Commandments are. It's in Exodus 21, 22, and 23, which if you read that section is all about how Israel is supposed to operate as a nation state, what we would call their judicial system. And so what has happened, it seems, in the Pharisees' time and Jesus' time is this command, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, instead of something that God intended for the the judges to determine and to exact that judgment and bring justice, the the Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law have said, hey, you can pursue this on your own as an individual. Okay, they're kind of forgetting some of the places in, uh, in Scripture where we're reminded that uh, vengeance is the Lord. They're forgetting uh, Deuteronomy 19. If you want to turn there, you can. We're going to wander through some Old Testament passages today a little bit. Deuteronomy 19, verse 16, again, will show you this idea. It says, if a malicious witness, verse 16, I'm sorry, of Deuteronomy 19, arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. Before, listen to this the priests, and the judges who are in office in those days. So you got your context. They're going to court. This is the official judicial system. And then it goes on to talk about how these issues should be resolved. And in the last verse, verse 21, your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Okay? So you got one thing so far. This commandment comes from the Old Testament judicial system Commands, not something necessarily an individual is supposed to take on to themselves. In fact, the Old Testament says a number of times, vengeance is the Lord's. It's mine to repay. Don't don't take it upon yourself. It's interesting to follow the pathway a little bit further. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth sounds pretty harsh to us, but is it? What's our response? You know, I I had the ingenious idea of checking out from the library the the recent Three Stooges movie. To watch with my boys. That was a good idea with, for a father of four boys, wasn't it? To watch a, a Three Stooges movie. You know, you know how the Three Stooges go. Uh, uh, Mo, Larry, whoever, you know. Mo, Mo bumps Larry with a two-by-four. Kind of accidental. What's Larry do? Smash back his arm with a hammer. What's Mo do then now that he's been smashed back? He takes a crowbar, swings him across his, his, his head, right? Takes him out. But, you know, it escalates. It goes higher and higher, more intense. Uh, There's a reason we talk about the Hatfields and the McCoys, don't we? And we still uh, remember that and think about that. And TV shows are on about that because escalation. So we don't normally just, if somebody does something wrong to us, what's our sinful disposition? You know, you hit me, I hit back harder. You take my stuff, I take more of your stuff. You sue me, I'm going to sue you for twice of what you sue me. You withhold love from me, I'm going to withhold even more love from you. Right? Isn't that the way we respond? Don't we experience that just even in social relationships and work relationships, in our marriage relationships? We get in those arguments. We don't fight back with the same equal amount. Our propensity is to go overboard and hit back. So the eye for an eye and tooth for tooth is actually a is is a moderating influence to say, no, the justice should be exactly for what was taken. 
You don't take an eye for a tooth. The tooth's not as valuable as an eye. You don't take a life for an eye. Those punishments should fit the crime. Does that make sense to you all? So Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying, you, you, you've got it wrong. Uh, you've taken this thing that was actually meant to make relationships just and relationships good. And you've given it as a permission to individuals to fight back when really the whole purpose was to keep fighting back from happening and to allow people that are objective and outside the situation to determine what's right and good. Now, this is the picture. And, of course, to believe this, we have to kind of believe some of the stuff we've uh, we've been doing. I know a number of families. I was excited to see. I think almost 30 families in our church got the little uh, uh, book that's going through devotionals related to the catechism. This one last week was a little bit ethereal, you know, a little bit complex. Let's admit it. Decrees of God, what is that, you know, sort of talking about? Decrees, what he declares to be for all the universe. And the, the things that we said was his, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to his will, whereby he foreordains whatever comes to pass. The person that's going to live out this commandment that Jesus gives has to be kind of like Joseph in the Bible. Remember him in the Old Testament? His brothers did all those horrible things to him. And at the end of the Genesis, he says, you know, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. How do you do that? How do you believe that? You can only believe it if you recognize, hey, God's in control of this whole program, even if it's not going to work out the way I intended. I assure you, Ashley Smith did not want to get forced into her, her apartment and held by this criminal. She didn't want that to happen. But somehow she was able by faith to say, this is the situation I'm in How do I glorify God in the midst of it? Well, I think the last question for us as we look at at a good bit of this Matthew passage, and you can kind of flip back there if you're still over in Deuteronomy. I'll try to get there too. This Matthew uh, passage, Jesus' words are are very challenging for us, but we we read along and he says, hey, if somebody does one thing to you, then then try try to absorb the blow for the sake of the gospel. Try not to fight back with uh, equal or even greater force. Try to overcome that with love and grace. And then it ends with this, though. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. All right. We've all been there. And I can remember the opportunity I'm sure I've shared about with before in my college uh, years going up to New York City. And we were taking uh, some college students with us. This was back when Tim Keller's ministry up there was just getting started. And, and they had a ministry to the city. And, and they talked to us up front and the, all the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, idealistic young college folks like some of them we've got sitting up here. And they wanted to go and serve and wanted to bless people. And the folks running the program in New York for this, this uh, week-long spring break deal said, uh, hey, you know, folks on the street, if you give them money, that money can go to very damaging things for them oftentimes. But, but everybody's got a sack lunch. Everybody's got a sack lunch every day with a bologna sandwich in it and some chips and a drink and a cookie and so forth. So here's the deal. If somebody comes up to you and needs something or wants something, asks you for something, it's up to you. If you want to go without lunch that day, feel free to give, you know, serve them by giving them your lunch. Well, I mean, the panhandlers must have seen us getting on the subway, us bumpkins from St. Louis, from the Midwest, getting on the New York subway. And and, and before we weren't on the subway five minutes and somebody made his way through and he he looked like a rough, rough guy, looked like he might have needed some help. And he began to engage these students and talk about how he needed some money for some food and so forth. Bam, 15 sack lunches, you know, right in his face. There's all the sack lunches. I'm going to outdo you. I'm going to be the most loving one. 
fellow looks inside one of the lunch bags, takes a look at what's in there, looks back at the students, says, I was really looking more for an egg and bacon sandwich. Folds it back up, hands it back to them. That was the first lesson in, uh, in how to do this thing, how to love, how to serve. So, hey, are we going to need some discernment? Are we going to need some wisdom, some help as to how to love and give to those who ask for us? Absolutely. But Jesus is saying, hey, the posture of a believer ought to be one of graciousness, of absorbing the blow, not responding to it. That's a hard one for us, isn't it? If we think about it, we need God's grace to begin to do it. Second thing we see is that we're called to love the non-lovable, what Jesus calls straightforwardly our enemies. Here, the the people of the day have gotten even a little bit more. um, They're not just sort of neglecting some of what the Old Testament commandments or or sort of shading it a little bit here. Here, they've sort of completely altered some of the intended meaning of God's word. It says in verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Do you know where that's in the Bible? You won't be able to find it. It says in the Old Testament to love your neighbor. And the people knew that. But here's here's the logic that, that must have, have gone along and that Jesus is confronting. Love your neighbor. OK, well, that means love the folks that are sort of around me. Those are my neighbors. And they're kind of like me. They maybe believe the same. They maybe look the same. Uh, they may be in the same socioeconomic class or whatever. These are my neighbors. And then because it says love my neighbors, what it must mean is that I should dislike or maybe even hate other people. That's the way it had been transformed. Again, the idea, because the teachers of the law and the people of the time are not relying on grace and not seeing God's mercy, you got to make that law uh, doable. So loving your neighbor is really tough if it means love people that look differently than you and I. Love people that might actually be against us and what we believe. Uh, that's really hard. So we got to make it easier. We make it easier by saying, okay, love just those people around you that are like you and, uh, and hate, in fact, your enemies. It's interesting. Proverbs 25, 21, you don't need to turn there, but uh, says this. You know, again, we might say, well, those Old Testament people, they like to go slaughtering left and right. They love to kill them some enemies, right? No, not really. I mean, God gave them some commands a few times for his purposes redemptively to go fight their enemies. But 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 they weren't really out looking for that. That was something God directed for them to do. Verse 21 of Proverbs 25 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Sounds like what Jesus is kind of saying here. So Jesus is just bringing them back really to the truth, to the proper understanding of it and then i already said it before but let me just point out again what jesus talks about after this is hey what i really want you to do is not that complex i just want you to be kind of like god is because you're god's people so the way god works is he sends sunshine and he sends rain on everybody he sends sunshine and rain on your boss or your neighbor or people halfway across the world that that maybe don't like you and maybe you would consider your enemies. He, he does that. And that's his common grace. It's different from his saving grace. But, but he loves everybody in that general kind of way. And so the call here is to ask uh, of ourselves, is that the kind of love we have for our enemies? It's interesting. Um, I realize that even if we get that this is kind of an interpersonal thing, I'm going to talk in a minute about how this relates to our government. So that's our third point, that 
hopefully will help clear some of that up. But even we get that this is just an interpersonal thing. The fact is some of us here, and it may have been years ago or it may have been recently, have been deeply, deeply hurt by people around us. Not just on the surface. Now, some of us, maybe that hadn't been the case. We've been, you know, thankfully, maybe that hasn't happened. But some of us have in situations of abuse or other other issues that have gone on. And, and this is a very hard commandment then to, to think about in that case. And, and I thought it was helpful what I found in, uh, in John Stott's writings. Uh, he's uh, passed away now, but his commentaries are just, just great. He has a commentary just on the Sermon on the Mount. That's, you, you've noticed I've been quoting from him. If you want to read more about this Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's very readable. It's not like some seminary heady thing that you've got to have a degree to understand. Uh, he says this. He says, the truth is that evil men should be the objects simultaneously of our love and of our hatred, as they are simultaneously the objects of God's. To love them is to ardently desire that they will repent and believe and so be saved. To hate them is to desire with equal ardor, that means intensity, that if they stubbornly refuse to believe and repent, they will incur God's judgment. And he asks this question, which is an interesting one. Have you ever prayed for the salvation of wicked men and gone on to pray that if they refuse God's salvation, then God's judgment will fall upon them? Seems kind of schizophrenic, doesn't it? He says, I have. It's a natural expression of our belief in God that he is God, both of salvation and of judgment, that we desire his perfect will to be done. Got to have grace and wisdom, again, to love our enemies, as Jesus calls us to. The last thing I want us to see, and the third thing, is to take a look, and I will ask you to turn over uh, there with me, because uh, Romans 12, end of Romans 12 and beginning in Romans 13, I think is going to be really helpful for us to, if you will, tie up some loose ends that are probably floating around in our mind, or if we think about this later, we'll probably be floating around in there. And what I've been trying to do uh, so far is really help us to see how Jesus' words are are a fulfillment of what he said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. He said he came not to uh, cancel or abolish the law and the prophets, what came before him, but he came to do what? Fulfill them. So we've seen how, in fact, Jesus' words, though very challenging, uh, are in fact in line with what the Scriptures have said before, and the people of his day were just misinterpreting them now what i want us to see because the question might arise well that's kind of jesus's ethic that's how he uh, proposes things but really you look at the rest of the bible and it's kind of different or paul has a little bit different approach take a look with me at romans chapter 12 starting in verse 14 and uh see if this doesn't really sound very similar to some things we've just read a moment ago verse 14 romans 12 bless Those who persecute you bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil 
with good. Okay? Sounds a lot like what we just read in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says next in verse 13. Because the question will arise, then, what do we do about evil in the world? Is, is it the, the role of, of societies, communities, nations to just roll over and let it, let it come in the, the same way that Jesus is saying that we initi- initiate as believers to try to absorb evil by not resisting and by loving our enemies? Is that, is that the global thing? Is that a plan for, for society as a whole? The Apostle Paul answers the question right here, verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God. And those that, have, that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers do not, are not a terror of good conduct, but to bad. Would you, who have, would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, then you'll receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evil doer. What's he saying there? As one of the quotes in your in your uh, sermon note section says, hey, there's, there's a place that God has appointed. You know, the same word there, he, the, when it speaks about the government being a servant, is the same word as minister. He's, the government is a minister to, to bless in this way. Now, I like what, uh, again, one of the commentators says regarding the, the role of government, and that is that the state sometimes does what it's supposed to and does what it is not supposed to. And we see that in the scriptures, don't we? In Acts chapter 5, you remember uh, Peter and John were, were doing something crazy. They were going out and preaching the gospel. They were going out and saying, hey, come to Jesus and you'll be saved. And, and, and guess what? The authorities didn't like that. They said, we don't like you preaching that, so you need to stop. And you remember what they said? They said, are we supposed to obey you rather than God? God's told us to do this thing clearly. That we're supposed to do and all people are supposed to hear it. So they made a choice there to say, well, we recognize that the government is under God's authority. So we don't submit to it blindly, capriciously as believers in all things. There's a limit to its authority. John Stott, again, is helpful. He put it this way. He said, indeed, the same state which in Romans 13 is termed the servant of God wielding its authority is pictured in Revelation 13. As an ally of the devil, wielding his authority. But these two aspects of the state complement one another. They're not contradictory. The fact that the state has been instituted by God does not preserve it from abusing its power and becoming a tool of Satan. Nor does the historical truth that the state has sometimes persecuted good men alter the biblical truth that its real function is to punish bad men. And when the state exercises its God-given authority to punish, it's the servant of God. To execute wrath on the wrong doer. Right? Think about for a minute things that we see regularly in our recent history, meaning the last 50 years in America. The civil rights movement, an example. Uh, MLK's letter from the Birmingham jail right here in our own city. If you've ever read that, if you haven't, you know, pick it up and read it. It's, it's, it's very compelling. His message was, hey, I know everybody wants law and order. Everybody wants things to be status quo. But when there's a law that's unjust, it shouldn't be obeyed. It's the same thing that folks did in the in the late 80s 
when uh, abortion providers were growing and, and expanding and so forth and, and gathered around. I know that's a sensitive topic, but they, they gathered, around, gathered around as believers and locked arms and even chained themselves to the facilities to say, oh, we don't believe this is a just thing happening in our society, so we're going to do what we can. We'll even get arrested to stop it because the government is allowing something. Now, uh, along the way, I think those folks, the media coverage and the way that was spun, they saw, look, this is, uh, this is not going the direction we want it to. Better to open some clinics and serve and love as we can and work through the government channels best we can to change that unjust law. But, but their ideal was right in the sense that it was unjust and they wanted to do something about it. So this gets to the whole issue of what is the, what's the role that we have in society. And our role, again, is saying in Scripture as believers is to love those who are opposed to us. That doesn't mean we abandon all the structures around us that are, are good structures put in place for God to provide security, to, for God to provide safety. And indeed, those structures are absolutely intended to bring judgment on the enemy, right? That's the way the scriptures read. Well, how do we get there? How do we even begin to, to apply these things in our own life? It's interesting what Jesus says. He tells us to pray for those who persecute us. And then he says this, as if all this stuff wasn't hard enough, what kind of way is this to treat us? Jesus, we get to verse 48 and you say, therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's interesting that we're going to go right after this into the idea of prayer and the Lord's prayer in Matthew uh, chapter six, because that's how we get there is through calling out to God. And I remember reading about the story of uh, Christians in East Germany back in uh, 1989, and we'll close with this. Uh, that was the same year, if you if you recall or have read, for the youngsters among us, uh, that earlier in 1989, the Tiananmen uh, Square massacre occurred. Uprising to seek to bring freedom, a good bit of that was motivated by Christian folks as well, squashed and many people killed by the governing authorities at the time. And that didn't keep folks in East Germany. And I know hindsight, as we look back on it, makes all of that stuff look inevitable. But it wasn't. They took steps and they prayed and God moved. In Leipzig, they gathered at the St. Nicholas Church. And they started actually before Tiananmen Square earlier that year. And it was first just a couple of people. And then it was a dozen people. And then it was 25. And then it was 100. And then by fall, a 1,000 people had gathered at this one uh, little church. And then on October 9th, something totally surprising to everybody happened. All of a sudden, 70,000 people came from all around East Germany to pray, to pray that they would have freedom restored for the churches to practice and freedom restored for their country. And, and, and as you can imagine, it had already gathered the attention of the, the police and the authorities who were gathering together with their machine guns ready to put down whatever revolt would come up. And one lady talked about the power of prayer and the power of love. And I like how she uh, stated it. She said this. She said the soldiers were ready for everything, meaning militarily ready to put down their prayerful uh, protest. She said they were ready for everything except for candles and for prayer. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we know the end of that story that um, uh, freedom and liberation 
and uh, good things for uh, people to enjoy uh, came about uh, through those prayers and through those candles. And so, Father, we uh, ask that you would give us a vision in our lives individually and in our land, in our country, for the power that uh, loving our enemies would, uh, would have and the power that not resisting those who ask uh, seemingly obnoxious things of us would, would have to display your kingdom and to show ourselves uh, to be representatives of you and your children. Father, I pray deeply that you would help us to be a church family that loves beyond just people that we know that are friends of ours, that we have a relationship with, that have something to offer us socially or relationally. Lord Jesus, help us to love people that look differently than us, that talk differently, that believe differently. And Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come through that. In Jesus' name, amen.